is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. The New South Wales election was yet another bad night for the Liberal Party. Voters across Sydney turned on the Liberals with double-digit swings in Parramatta, Castle Hill, Riverston, Kellyville, Hornsby, Canterbury... ..who are now out of government, not only federally, but in every state and territory on mainland Australia. With an inevitable post-election review set to examine where it all went so wrong. So what's next for the coalition? Move to the centre in an attempt to win back seats off the independents? Or listen to the fringes of their party and move further to the right. This result plays into my theory that the Liberal Party doesn't know what it is or what it stands for anymore. Matt Keane is the face of that poison in New South Wales. Today, I'm talking to Head of News Mike Tisher and Associate News Editor Joe Tovey about the future of the Liberal Party. It's Friday, the 31st of March. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Good morning, Joe. Hello, Gabs. So we had the New South Wales election on the weekend. We know Labor has won, probably minority government, but tell us about how bad it was for the Liberal Party, Joe. Well, it was bad, but it wasn't as bad as the Liberals have fared in some other recent elections. It wasn't kind of a Category 5 wipeout like we saw in WA. This would be more like a kind of Category 1 or 2 storm that hit the Liberal Party. Looks like they're going to end up on about 35 seats to Labor, ending up on about 45. That's where the count is at the moment. There's about three seats still in play. So not reduced to a rump, but I don't think it's a disaster at the level we saw at the federal election or at some recent state elections. And, Mike, why? What are some of the reasons being given for this loss for the Liberal Party? So, as Joe said, it wasn't like a cataclysmic loss. It was kind of a regular loss, I guess. They'd been in power for 12 years, so it's hardly unexpected to lose an election. But they had a lot of problems in their internal party structures. They had a difficulty picking a diverse range of candidates. They lost a lot of senior MPs who retired, and most, if not all, of those seats uh, went to Labor. But, and, and also they were fighting on two fronts, so they were trying to, not to lose seats to the Teal independents, mostly on the North Shore and Northern Beaches, as they did in the federal election, which they kind of just about succeeded in, although some of them were very close. Where they did lose was in mostly in the western suburbs of Sydney and in some of the regional areas, 
So they're trying to walk that line not very successfully between, as they would put it, standing up for the battlers in the outer suburbs and fighting off the environmentally minded teals in the uh, in the more prosperous suburbs. And that sort of half worked. That's why it wasn't absolute catastrophe for them, but they nevertheless lost government. And Labor ran a fairly effective campaign, I think, targeting cost of living issues in the middle of a cost of living crisis, which left the Liberals quite exposed. Labor really, you know, it wasn't a big ideas campaign, but the ideas that they did hone in on were tolls, pay for essential workers, simple things that really affect the lives of people, particularly living in the mortgage belt of Sydney, which is where this election was really lost for the Liberals. And after years of sort of a lot of privatisations and infrastructure building, which was seen as a real plus for the coalition for a long time, a lot of those things have added to the cost of living as well for people, you know, people who are paying upwards of $50 a week in tolls. Labor was able to really capitalise on that, turn it against the Liberals, and they were left quite exposed at this time. Looking around the country, Mike, this loss for the Liberals does seem to be reflecting a broader trend. Yeah, so I think that's why the defeat has been seen as somewhat worse than it actually was taken in isolation, because it's the latest in a long series of defeats in both state and federal level, some of which have been, as Joe said, you know, kind of cataclysmic defeats like in WA, bad defeats in South Australia and Victoria recently, and of course federally last year. Tasmania is the only seat where uh, Labor is not in power. And obviously that starts people thinking, you know, is this a a long-term trend that is going to make it hard for the Libs to get back into power at any point in any state? (laughs) Which, you know, that's obviously putting it at quite an extreme level and that is an unlikely scenario. But the maps that went out showing how gradually the country went from blue to red over time were quite dramatic. So how did we get to this point where the Liberal Party only holds one government? Yeah, so I think there are sort of two things going on here. On the one hand, I think politics can just be cyclical. Like we go through periods where the Liberals hold most of the power around the country. That was only sort of within the last decade. And you see a lot of hand-wringing about, is this the end of the Labor Party? Are the demographics against the Labor Party? There's a lot of soul-searching needed, all of that. Within seven to ten years, that's reversed course. And now we're seeing the same thing happening with the Liberal Party. So there's an element of just a sort of it's time factor, I think, that takes hold. Power does funny things to parties. Inevitably, there's going to be corruption scandals and party machines falling apart and leaders get on the nose. And, all, you know, all of that sort of thing plays a role here. But I do think with the Liberal Party, there are also structural factors here, which I think people within the party and who support the party are cognizant of, or some of them are, that pose a long-term threat to the party. Things around who their base is, can they draw a broad enough support from enough people in Australia to form governments, or do they become an increasingly niche party that appeals to a smaller, even if vocal, section of the community? If so, forming government becomes incredibly difficult. There's a few things to pick apart here, aren't there? So I think one is that several of those elections fell in or just outside the pandemic lockdown period, which had quite an unusual and profound influence on how people thought about their governments and generally favoured incumbent governments. So in Queensland, WA, South Australia, I think that was, was a factor in all of those elections, particularly WA. And that obviously, well, we hope won't be repeated anytime soon. But in the longer term, I think what might be a, a somewhat longer term trend is that both the major parties are losing ground. We saw that massively in the last federal election where Labor got back into power despite having a primary vote in the low 30s. So there is a little, definitely a long-term trend away from the two major parties. And well, that's 
the result of the rise of the independents and the greens and i do think that's something that is much more likely to be if not permanent then a, a long-term trend yeah so why why are voters moving away from the major parties and is it just going to continue well, one issue is younger voters. We're seeing millennial voters becoming the largest share of the voting body. They're displacing baby boomers as the largest generational cohort. And we're seeing that these are people who, A, generally don't join political parties and don't have the sort of, you know, ideological or personal connection to parties that maybe their parents' generation did. But there are also structural factors that are influencing how millennials vote. They're not becoming conservative in the way that previous generations did. You know, they, it used to be a sort of truism that people were more left-wing as they were when they were younger and became more conservative as they got older. And that was largely because not just because people sort of minds change as they get older, but their life situation changes. You tend to accumulate wealth and assets and maybe the way you vote is more influenced by a desire to protect that wealth and assets. And that's certainly sort of how Australian politics has played out and the major parties have often played to the homeowning class as opposed to renters, say. But we're seeing with millennials, this is a generation which I'm part of, where people increasingly do not own houses, they don't have secure jobs, they don't see rising wages, and that's really affecting how they vote and whether these major parties can appeal to them with some of the same tactics that they've been using decade after decade. I also think on some social issues, you know, we're seeing there are social issues that once were kind of a left-right thing, say LGBTQ rights, but among millennials, there isn't really a left-right divide on issues like that. I don't think even millennials who would identify as sort of fiscally conservative and necessarily hold the same socially conservative views that perhaps their parents did. So for parties like the coalition, which tend to adhere to more conservative social values, I think it's hard for them to hold on to those voters. And that's where you're seeing people like the Teals come in who may offer a sort of light liberal fiscal approach to politics, but they're very socially progressive. They believe in climate change. They're pro-gay and lesbian rights. They're the sort of candidates who younger, wealthier or traditionally conservative voters might be more comfortable voting for. Joe, you talked about the structural changes in the electorate, you know, insecure work, housing being an issue for millennials and the climate crisis being really important for them. But Labor has shifted more to the centre. Mm. How are they going to deal with that? I think so far those structural factors haven't hit the Labor Party in the same way, although, of course, there has been the slow bleed of some inner-city Labor seats to the Greens, which we've been seeing at a state and federal level over the last decade. I do think that housing and rent is the sleeper issue, though, that Labor does not have the answers to. They're not credibly presenting answers either to the rental crisis in our cities or to the housing supply crisis across the country. We're seeing Band-Aid solutions. We're seeing a lot of rhetoric around, you know, no-fault evictions and things like that, but we're not seeing any credible moves on things like rent control or other policies which are quite mainstream overseas but still in Australia seem to be a bit taboo. And I think without action on those issues, those problems for the Labor Party will only grow the opportunities for the Greens and the Teals and other parties which can really credibly tap into the very real concerns and insecurity of the growing class of renters in this country will come back to bite Labor and it's something they need to get on top of. I think climate is the other big issue that cuts across both major parties here. So we've seen the Greens taking seats particularly in inner city Brisbane in the federal election that previously would have been a Labor heartland and the Teals taking seats that were previously Liberal heartland 
both, to a very large extent, focused on climate issues. And the other issue that comes up there is not policy one, but I think it's about momentum. Starting perhaps with Cathy McGowan in Indi several federal elections ago, but it's been shown that once independents do get established and people believe that they can win, it, that becomes quite hard for the major parties to displace. I think the results on Northern Beaches and the North Shore in the New South Wales election, although most of the Liberals held on to most of those seats, showed that they're going to find it really hard to win those back. We've already seen Zali Stegall hold her mm. federal seat once. There's a newfound belief among independents that they can, with financial backing, they can they can win unexpected seats and not only win them once but hold on to them for several elections. Even in Gladys Berejiklian's old seat of Willoughby, the Liberal incumbent only held on and if there were preferences he definitely would have lost. Mm, Yeah it looks like those seats were only sandbagged only just across the North Shore both by the lack of mandatory preferential voting so that meant that the Teals were denied preferences which might have just got the line and in the case of the New South Wales government you did have progressive figures like Matt Keane out there talking about climate change, talking about, you know, policies that affect working women like childcare in quite sort of progressive ways. I think that probably helped just hold off the threat, but it was really only a matter of a couple of percent in a number of seats in that area. And it would, it's easy to see with another election cycle, perhaps that it could have gone the other way, that you could see the teal wave sweep Sydney at a state level as well as at a federal level. And this is where, this is where it's so bizarre to see people on the right of the Liberal Party, Yamat Canavans and, and so on, arguing that they lost because they were liberal light, so-called, and too progressive, and Matt Keane is the particular hate figure here. And Peter Credlin was writing in The Australian this week that they shouldn't have concentrated on climate because it was a first-world concern. And she said, imagine a mob so bereft of brains that they count the protection of posh seats, that is, those ones on the North Shore and Northern Beaches, versus the loss of government as a win. I mean... You lose government when you don't win any seats, yeah. <laughs> whether they're posh or not. But for a liberal, a liberal party to be discounting these so-called posh seats as not their heartland and not worth bothering about trying to win just seems, frankly, a recipe for further isolation and defeat. Also, does she not know that most of the people who suffer from the climate crisis are third world <laughs> countries? But also on that point, I think it should be said that the Liberal Party didn't lose seats here to the right. It wasn't that one nation performed well. Their vote actually went slightly backwards in the upper house. They didn't pick up any extra lower house seats, despite like quite a big push from Mark Latham and the sort of media time that he gets on commercial radio, it was they were losing seats to Labor, to progressive independents. That's where the threat to the Liberal Party comes from. So it's not credible to make the argument here that what the Liberals need to do is to move further to the right. That's really just an argument you're hearing from a very small but loud section of the right wing of the coalition and the sort of after dark commentariat. Next. Reconciling our past and slippery ski slopes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head. Mike, what is it for you this week? So the unavoidable story this week, I think, was one about The Guardian itself. Our colleagues in the UK launched a series called Cotton Capital, which went into the links between the founders of The Guardian in Manchester in the early part of the 19th century. Uh, they were cotton manufacturers and traders, and they were sourcing their cotton from the southern United States, where uh, it was picked by people who were enslaved. And it's been a very difficult topic for The Guardian to approach, but one that I think we're all very glad that it has broached in a very transparent and thorough way. It involves first steps towards some kind of reparation for those past deeds. And on the on the site itself, there's just an absolute wealth of fascinating and thought-provoking and kind of challenging content in, in many ways about the history of those times and also what we're doing about it now. So it's a difficult subject for all of us here at The Guardian to, to think about and to tackle, but I think from what we've seen and read of it so far, uh, there's so much fascinating and really thought-provoking material there. I'd really encourage our readers to go and have a look. I particularly liked the piece and the video from David Olasoga. I thought it was really interesting. Joe, I hope you're going to change the tone here a little bit. I'm going to give everybody intellectual whiplash by changing the tone so hard because after the most worthy story or series that The Guardian's published this week, I wanted to talk about possibly the stupidest story of the week, which is the Gwyneth Paltrow ski gate trial. I'm here for this. Which was... Some guy is suing Gwyneth Paltrow for $300,000 over a ski accident. She's countersuing him for $1. It's playing out in a televised series of courtroom hearings which provide a sort of daily meme factory for all of us to enjoy of stupid lines, great outfits. It's just bonkers. It feels like the White Lotus, you know, the White Lotus couldn't have ridden this better. It is rich people at their dumbest. As Marina Hyde wrote in an excellent column this week, this is as low stakes as it gets. And she pointed to one moment where Gwyneth Paltrow was asked about, you know, what she lost as a result of this terrible event. And her reply was, well, I lost half a day of skiing. <laughs> Can't Beautiful. believe that's only worth a dollar. Five stars. <laughs> and and Joe, you think that she's doing it with her laughs? I Gwyneth gets a lot of hate, which I think she deserves. I think you know some of her crimes against you know what we eat and how women's we dress health. and women's health, <laughs> all of that, very well earned. I can't believe she's not approaching this with her tongue slightly not in cheek. Like she's so deadpan. She's really going for it. I feel like the sort of the seventies glasses and the roll neck sweaters. It's. <laughs> I think she's enjoying this role as much as any she's ever played and we are enjoying it too. We are indeed. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mike. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Joe. Thanks. Thanks. 
Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more stories about politics, this week Jane Lee dissected the upcoming Aston by-election with Guardian Australia's chief political correspondent, Paul Karp. It's a fascinating listen. Look for it in the feed. And also I recommend Fiona Katowskis' very funny cartoon from this week. Go look it up. Today's episode was produced by Miles Herbert, Camilla Hannan and Daniel Simo. The executive producer was me, Gabrielle Jackson. Have a great weekend. We'll see you back here on Monday. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.